I wish you would open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Numbers and the New Testament book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're picking back up tonight in our study entitled, What We Learn in the Wilderness. We're spending some time on these Wednesday nights in the book of Numbers as the children of Israel at this point had come out of Egyptian bondage. They're on their way to the promised land, but a trip that should have taken them about 11 days took them about 40 years. And so they spent all this time in the wilderness wandering around. Now, we know that in the Old Testament analogy for our application today, the Egypt represents our lostness. They were there in bondage. Pharaoh represents the devil. The promised land represents the abundant life that God wants us to have right here and right now. It's not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the abundant life God wants us to have now. But between Egypt and the promised land, there is this huge wilderness. Now, from a biblical perspective, I could say it this way. It is impossible to go from Egypt to the promised land without going through the wilderness. It is geographically impossible. You have to travel through the wilderness. Now, for us today, it is impossible for us to reach a place of spiritual maturity, of spiritual consistency, of spiritual victory without going through times of testing, trials in our life. Between the moment when you got saved, when that blood of Jesus was applied to your life, until you come into that place where you say, you know what? I'm living a life of consistency. I'm living a life of victory. I'm living a life of peace and joy, and I'm overcoming my circumstances, and I'm looking at things differently than how I've looked at things before. Well, in, in order for you to get to that place, you have got to go through the wilderness. And so we're going to be studying in numbers about that tonight. But I wanted to begin in Matthew chapter 11 with a very familiar passage. These are some words that Jesus spoke, and it really sets us up very nicely for where I want us to go uh, tonight. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Jesus said these words, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Many of the translations say burdened. The idea is you've got this burden on your life, the sin burden. Jesus said, if you're like that, come to me and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so the word rest appears twice in this passage. In verse 28, we read about rest. Come to me, Jesus said, all of you who are burdened by your sins, you're weary with your sins, bring your sins to me and I'll give you rest. We might call that salvation rest. It's the first rest. But in, 20, in verse 29, he mentions a second rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, the brother of John Wesley, those two brothers were very instrumental in a revival that swept through England hundreds of years ago, Charles Wesley refers to this rest in verse 29 as the second rest. The first rest is when we get saved. We might say it this way. 
When we get saved, when the blood of Jesus is applied to our life, we know that, that our sins are forgiven. We know that we're right with God. We no longer worry about our souls. We don't worry about that. We have rest in that sense. We have soul rest. We know that we're saved. But this second rest is different. When we have the second rest, we're no longer worried about anything. Now, it's possible to have the first rest, to have entered into the first rest, and yet not to have entered into the second rest. Everyone who is trusting Christ has entered into the first rest. Hebrews 4.3, we who have believed do enter that rest. But Jesus says there's another rest that you don't get when you first get saved. This first rest you get by receiving Christ. He said, I will give it to you. But this second rest, Jesus said, come and learn from me. We have to learn some things to get this second rest, to enter into this place where we don't worry about anything, and we learn what we need to learn during the wilderness seasons of life. In my notes, I've written it down like this. When we enter into that second rest, we're no longer worried about what people think. We're no longer worried about our circumstances. We're no longer worried about our families, our finances, or our futures. We're not stressed out, uptight, or overwhelmed. We're not fearful, anxious, or in any way ruffled. Do you ever get ruffled or rattled or uptight or one of those things? Well, we all do. But when we are in that second rest, we are free from all that. The first rest is received at the moment of salvation. The second rest is learned in the wilderness experiences of life. Now, before we leave Matthew chapter 11 and dive into Numbers, which is where I want us to be tonight, I don't want you to miss this. This is so important. Go back to it again. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, who are burdened, and I will give I'm going to give it to you. It's a gift. I'll give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. So we learn something in the wilderness, and we find rest. What is it that we learn? We learn how to trust God with our circumstances in the same way that we've learned how to trust God with our souls. That's why it says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You live the Christian life like you began the Christian life. You began the Christian life by trusting Christ. You continue on by trusting Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we learn what we need to learn in the wilderness experiences of life. And so that said, let's go back to the book of Numbers. And to begin with, let's go back to Numbers chapter 6. Because in the first message in our series on what we learn in the wilderness, we spent all of our time in Numbers chapter 6 talking about the priestly blessing. And what I wish you would write in your notes tonight, the first thing that we learn in the wilderness is that In the wilderness, God has a blessing for us. Some of you tonight are in a wilderness, circumstantially, financially, physically, emotionally, relationally, vocationally, 
mentally. You're in some kind of a, of a wilderness in, in your life. Well, in the wilderness, we learn that God has a blessing for us. And we did a whole sermon talking about the priestly blessing that, Mo, that God told Moses to tell Aaron to speak to the people. I want us just to read this blessing again tonight. But before we do, I want to say something. In the previous sermon, I made a statement that Aaron was the priest and that Moses was not a priest. And when I said that, I said, I know I'm, I'm in the neighborhood of saying the right thing, but I, I thought, I hope I said that right. Well, a day or two later, I was home reading my Bible, and I was in Psalm 99. Don't turn there, but let me just read this verse to you. And in Psalm 99 and in verse 6, it says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. And Samuel was upon those who called upon the Lord. And so I thought, now, you know, I misspoke. What was I thinking when I said Moses was not a priest? And I, I apologize for misspeaking. What I should have said was Moses was not the high priest. Moses was a priest in the sense that he stood between the people and God. That's what a priest does. They stand, that person stands between God and the people. Now, in New Testament sense, the good news is you don't have to go to a priest to go to God. We have access to God ourselves. In fact, the Bible says we're a royal priesthood ourselves. Did you know that you're a priest? I'm a priest. May not have on an outfit or a white collar and look like a priest in that sense, but I'm nonetheless a priest. I have access to God, and if you're saved, you have access to God. And I've done a lot of reading on that lately about this thing about the high priest and how Aaron was the high priest. He was the first high priest. Now, there's some who say that for about a week after the tabernacle had been built and as they were getting things in order that for all practical purposes, Moses functioned as the high priest, but actually Aaron technically was the first high priest that uh, we read about in, in this narrative. We have Melchizedek in Genesis, but in the Moses-Aaron era, it would have been Aaron as the high priest. And interestingly, this is what I was thinking when I said Moses wasn't a priest. The priesthood came through Aaron's sons, not through Moses' sons. Remember, Mo Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now, I'm not going to ask you to repeat that because we'd be all over the place trying to say those names. The first two boys offered up unholy fire to God in the tabernacle, and God struck him dead. And so now, instead of having four sons, Aaron has two sons, and the third son is now the oldest surviving son, Eleazar. And in Numbers chapter 20, when Moses went up on Mount Hor to die, or when Aaron did, rather, Moses said to Aaron, take off all these priestly vestments and these priestly clothes that you have on. See, Aaron was the high priest. And he said, put those on Eleazar because now the priesthood will pass down through him. And that's what Aaron did, and that's where Aaron died. Now, it's interesting here in, in chapter 6 of Numbers, beginning in verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses, and here's what God said, speak to Aaron and his sons and say, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Now, why didn't God just say to Moses, Moses, you bless the children of Israel? Because Moses was not the high priest. Aaron was the high priest, and then uh, his offspring through that line would be. But here was the blessing, and we learn that in the wilderness, there's a blessing for us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so, not to re-preach that tonight, but just to say, if you're in the wilderness tonight, remember this, God has a special blessing for you there. 
The blessing that he has is in many ways described here. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. Now, that said, we move tonight into the second lesson that we learn in the wilderness, and that is this. Now, you listen and say amen, because I want to make this good tonight. In the wilderness, we learn this, that what we focus on is very important. Most of us, when we get in the wilderness seasons of life, What do we focus on? The wilderness. We focus on what's going on. We focus on all the things we don't have. God, I don't have enough food. God, I don't have enough water. God, it's hot out here. God, how long are we going to be in the wilderness? God, it was, my life was better before than it is now. And so many times we get in the wilderness and we focus on the wilderness itself when in fact what we need to do is to focus on other things. And before we get in, I'm going to mention three things tonight right out of Numbers chapter 9 that we can learn from the children of Israel and how God helped them to get their focus in the right place. But I'm going to say, make a statement tonight that I've been thinking about for the last several months, maybe for the last couple of years even. And I think it is true. I know it's true. But I think the statement, if you think about it, could actually change your life. In the Christian life, I think we would all agree that we have an enemy whose name is the devil. You agree with that? Say amen. Now, it's helpful to understand what the enemy is trying to do to defeat us. He goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We know all these things about the devil. He's our adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren. The devil, is, the devil his purpose in a nutshell was to keep you from getting saved. So after you got saved, he lost the grand prize in your life, which was your soul. But he doesn't just give up on us and go, go somewhere else. After we get saved, the devil stands as a roadblock in our way and says, I will do anything within my power to keep them from getting into the promised land that God has for them. I don't want them experiencing the peace The joy, the contentment, the happiness, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the meaning, the purpose, and he's our adversary, and he stands between us and the promised land, and for many Christians, they never get into the promised land. They go to heaven when they die, but they don't ever experience this second rest that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11, and the reason is they got out there in the wilderness somewhere, and something happened. And instead of pressing on and pressing through and trusting God and getting into God's will for their life, what did they do? In the wilderness, they complained, they griped, they doubted God, they questioned God, they blamed God, they got angry at God, and their whole lives they just spent going around in a circle, and they never made it into where God wanted them to be in their life. Now, you say, John, I know all that's true, but were you about to tell us how the devil does that, and yes I, yes, I was, and yes, I am. The way that the devil stands as our opponent and tries to block us from getting into the promised land, you, I'm telling you, this, when I say this, you're going to say, well, you know, he is right on that. You may never have thought of it quite like this, but I guarantee you I'm right. The one thing he tries to do is to get our focus off of God. Now, I'm convinced of this. I don't really think the devil cares what you focus on 
as long as you're not focusing on God. I don't think he really cares. I mean, think about all the things. I think about in my own life, having been saved in all the years that I struggled, in my case, doubting my salvation. Now, why did I doubt my salvation? I wasn't doubting God. I was doubting me. I had my focus on me. And I think the devil thought John's focus is is inward. Even though he's sincere and genuine and loves God, if I can just keep his focus inward, he'll never have the joy and peace and assurance he could have if his focus was upward. And so there I was with an inward focus. Other people, they're out in the wilderness and they say, well, my focus is not so much inward. My focus is outward. And I'm looking on all the circumstances in my life and all the problems in my family and all the things, maybe my health or maybe my finances or maybe my kids or grandkids. Or I'm, you know, that's kind of what dominates my thinking. The devil says, that'll be fine because you're, you're looking outward, but you're still not looking upward. And so sometimes the devil just maybe gets our focus, maybe the devil will get your focus backward on the past. And instead of looking upward, you go through your whole life oh, I regret this, or I feel so bad about this, or I'm so ashamed of that, or, or I wish that. And, there. and so your whole focus is looking in the past. Or maybe, and this I think is an effective tool the enemy uses, he gets your focus out in the future, onward, <laughs> you know, outward in the, in the future in some way. And you're thinking, I wonder what my life's going to be like in five years or 10 years, or what's going to happen to me, or am I going to have enough money to hold out, or do I have enough retirement, or What if I get sick out there one day? Who's going to take care? So all these things. The devil doesn't care if you're focusing inward, outward, backward, or forward as long as you're not focusing upward. And so what I'm saying to you tonight is when you find yourself in the wilderness experiences of life, what you focus on is extremely important because if your focus is anywhere other than upward, I'm telling you, you're not going to make it into the promised land. You're going to just keep going around in circles, and the devil's going to just stand back and say, they don't even know what they're doing, but they've got their focus on another person, somebody they don't like, maybe somebody they're jealous of, maybe their life didn't turn out like they wanted to, maybe it's inward and it's worrying or whatever it might be. I'm telling you tonight, the most important thing we can do in life is to get our focus on God and keep our focus on Him. Now, in Numbers chapter 9, we learn three things that God was trying, or three ways that God was trying to get His people to focus, to get their focus in the right place. And beginning in verse number 1, we read and we learn, let me tell you the lesson, what what we need to focus on, then we'll look at the Scripture. We need to focus on God's provision in the past. Here you are out in the wilderness, and you're going through a very hard time. What should you focus on? Well, the first thing you should do is to remember how faithful God has been to you in the past. Now, in in Numbers chapter 9, it's called the second Passover. Now, the first Passover was down in Egypt when they killed those lambs and put the blood on the doorpost and on that lentil beam across the top. Well, now they've been in the wilderness for about a year or so, and uh, God says you need to observe the Passover again. Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. 
According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. So the first thing God said, you know what my people need in the desert, in this wilderness out there? They need a history lesson. They need a reminder that I'm the one who delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. I'm the one who told them to put the blood on the door. And when I saw the blood, I passed over. Friend, the wisest thing you can do in the wilderness seasons of life is to sit out in a chair somewhere, turn the television off, and say this to God. Say, God, I am where I am. I'm going through what I'm going through. And God, I'm discouraged, and I'm confused, and this is difficult, and it's painful, and it's lonely, and it's hard, and it's confusing, and I don't know what the next move is going to be. But God, what I've got to do, I've got to change my focus. And the first thing that I want to put my focus on is the blood of Jesus and the fact that he has saved me and made me a part of the family of God. And so just think about that for a while and just focus on that for a while and just say, God, I thank you that I'm saved. I I thank you, Lord, uh, that I know that I'm saved. That's one thing that happens every time we have the Lord's Supper here at the church. Jesus said, when you take the Lord's Supper, you remember the Lord's death. You remember what that means to you. Remember how personal that is for you. And so that's what we all need to do. We need to, we need to, to focus on God's provision in the past. The second thing we need to do is to focus on God's presence with us right here and right now. Now, in chapter 9, look in verse number 15. Now, they had the Passover. They were reminded how God delivered them out of Egypt. The focus now is getting off of themselves Getting on to God, beginning by thanking him for their salvation. And in verse 15, the scripture says, Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised, was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was, the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Now they're out there in the desert, and they've made a tabernacle. It's like, a port, it's like a movable sanctuary or a movable temple. It's where they would offer, it's where they would meet with God and worship God. Well, out there in the desert, after this tabernacle was built, this cloud came down. And that cloud represented the presence of God. And God was in that cloud. So that every day when the people looked up and they saw that cloud, it could be a reminder to them, a visible reminder, God is here. We're not alone. And at night, when they couldn't see the cloud, God made the cloud turn into like a pillar of fire. And uh, now they're looking up at night, and they're seeing this fire above the tabernacle. And that God was in that fire. That fire was a reminder, a visible reminder of God's presence with them. Now, in the wilderness seasons of life, one of the things that's difficult is we feel so alone. And, not, and sometimes we may be alone. Sometimes we may not physically be alone. But one of the things that makes the wilderness difficult is we feel like nobody really understands what I'm going through or how I'm, what, what, my, what my life is like right now. And so what do we have to do? We have to remind ourselves of the presence of God. You know, one of the things the devil will do in the wilderness, he will get us focused on all the things we don't have on all the things we wish we had. And 
that can be a very discouraging thing. What God is doing, God is, tr- is, ch- is trying to, to change our focus. And, and, and God is saying, don't focus on what the problems are. Don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you do have. And the greatest thing that you have is me in your life. I just got finished reading in the last few days through First and Second Timothy, two of Paul's letters that he wrote. And Second Timothy was the last letter that he wrote. And it was interesting when I was reading in Second Timothy chapter number four, Paul is now coming to the, he's in Rome, he's in prison. He's about to be beheaded and he knew it. He knew that his time was about over. In fact, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. So Paul knew he was about to die. And he said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And he's talking about the crown of righteousness that God's about to give him when he gets to heaven and so on. But it's interesting. Paul says this. He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. And then in the next verse, he said this, but the Lord stood with me. Now, here's Paul in a Roman prison about to die for no crime. He's not done anything wrong. He's about to be beheaded, executed because of his faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Paul's in trouble because he'd been obedient to God. That's the bottom line with Paul. And he said, to make matters even more difficult, nobody stood with me. Everybody forsook me. But he didn't stay in that vein very long. In fact, Paul said this. He said, may it not be charged against them. He wasn't even bitter towards those who had not stood by him. Because You know why he wasn't bitter? Because he said, the Lord stood with me. You see, it would have been easy for Paul to have focused on, well, where is everybody? Where is God? Why is God letting me go through this? That's what Paul did. Paul said, you know what? The Lord stood with me, and I have his presence, and as long as I have God with me, I have all I need. Another verse I read in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, listen to this verse, tremendous verse. Paul said, now godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? Contentment is being satisfied with your life. It's being satisfied with where you are in life, being satisfied with what you have in life. It's just being... You're content. You're not trying to, you know, experience something you haven't experienced or gain something you don't already have. You've learned to be content. What did Paul say in Philippians 4, verse 11? I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. See, that's that's what Jesus was saying. He's saying this second rest doesn't come to us when we first get saved. This second rest is something we learn as we go through the wilderness experiences of life. And one of the things we have to learn is how to be content. How could Paul, in Philippians he was in prison, in second, when he wrote 2 Timothy, he was in, a, he was in prison for, the sec, for another time. It was a second imprisonment there in Rome. And yet he's talking about contentment both times. How is this man content? Let me ask you a question. I think sometimes we think the Paul and David and Moses, these guys are like super, you know, like Superman or Spider-Man, these superhuman heroes. These are just normal, these are human beings. How content would you be tonight in Harris County Jail with chains around your feet, possibly chains around your hand, and you're there and you didn't even do anything wrong, and the friends you've made while you're in the jail, they've turned against you, and now they don't want anything good to happen to you. And so they've, you know, 
and there you are tonight. Now, I think most of us would have a hard time with that. I think I would have a very difficult time with that. And yet Paul was in a very similar situation. He said, you know, I've learned something here. I've learned to be content when my circumstances stink and when they're impossible. And you think, Paul, how are you so content? And if Paul were here tonight, he'd say, here's here's why I was content. Because I discovered in that Roman, dark, dungy prison, Paul would say to us, you think Harris County Jail is bad? You think Huntsville Penitentiary is bad? And it is. Paul would say, we didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have window units. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have any of the things that make jail and prison even at least somewhat bearable today. Paul said, we didn't have any of that. But I'll tell you what I had. I had with me in that Roman prison the presence of Jesus Christ, and I learned in that place that as long as I have Jesus, I have all I need. You see, Paul was a normal human being, but I'm telling you one thing. He was living his life on a plane, on a level, that most of us will, will never know anything about because that's, that's how deep and devout and committed he was to Jesus. And so his focus was on Jesus, not on his circumstance. And in the, in the desert out here, God is saying to his children, look at this cloud. Don't look around. Don't look at the snakes. Don't look at the problems. Don't look at each other. Look up and let that cloud be a reminder that I'm right there with you. And then the last thing I would say, we need to focus on where God is leading us in the future. See, we don't want to focus inward, outward. We don't want to focus fearfully forward or regretfully backward. No, we want to focus on what God has done. He has saved us. The blood of Jesus has washed my sins away. Okay, that's my first thing. That's going to get me through this wilderness. Second thing is, The presence of God is here with me. I'm not alone. And the third thing we want to do is focus on where God is leading us in the future. Verse 17, when the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. And so if the cloud stayed put, the people stayed put. The cloud moved, the people moved. People follow the cloud. I preached an entire sermon on that called Following a Cloud that We Cannot See. I'd love to do a booklet on that one day. Look in verse 22. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So what do they do? They follow the cloud. The cloud moved, they moved. Cloud stayed put, they stayed put. What were they doing? They were saying, that God, in the past, you delivered us out of Egyptian bondage. What are we saying? God, in the past, you saved me. And the, the, the real truth in life, if we really want to get right down to it, the real truth in life is the only thing that ultimately matters is whether or not we've been saved. Now, that's a pretty bottom line statement. I'm not saying that other people don't matter, but I'm saying certainly from the perspective of of our eternity, (laughs) the only thing that's going to matter whether or not we're saved. So here we are in life, difficult, God, this is tough, but you know what? I thank you I'm here knowing that I'm saved. I thank you I'm here knowing that you're with me. And God, I thank you that I'm here knowing that you have a plan for me in my future. One of the things 
that gets people stuck in the wilderness is their problems are so great and their circumstances are so dire and their focus is so much on that that they lose any hope about what God has planned for them out there in the future. You know, in, one, in my devotional this morning I was reading at home, I'm reading a Max Licato devotional this year, and I picked it up this morning to read it, and his, the title of the devotional was Turn the Page. And I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. And he, the scripture he used, and I'll read this tonight and then I'll stop. Here was his scripture for today. This is God speaking out of Isaiah 43 in verse 19. First, in verse 18, God said, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And Lakato's devotional was, you know, all of us in life, we need to turn the page on the past and let God lead us into the future that he has for us. It was a good devotional. So what am I saying tonight? I'm saying... Sometimes in life, we end up in the wilderness, and it's a tough place to be. And I'm saying, when we get there, we need to remember that in the midst of it, God has a special blessing for us, because if he didn't, he never would allow us to be there, and we need to remember we can't get to our promised land without going through some times of testing and trials. And we also need to remember that in order to make it through the wilderness, we have to get our focus in the right place, in God, his salvation, his presence, and his plan for our future. And as long, you know what? Here's how I look at it. If in the middle of your wilderness, you could just make that one change with your focus, God, I thank you that I'm saved. I thank you that you're here with me. And I thank you that you have a plan for my future. And you really believe that. You, really, you kind of get in faith. And you're saying, God, this, you know what will happen? For all practical purposes and for all spiritual purposes, just that quickly, you'll be in the promised land. You'll be there. You say, how long is it going to take me to get from the wilderness to the promised land? Well, if, if by asking that question you mean, how long is it going to take my circumstances to change? Well, they may never change. And even in the promised land, they're still fighting battles, and people are still dying, and there's still wars going on. And, I mean, circumstances weren't perfect in the promised land. But there was nonetheless milk and honey and, and everything they needed there. What I'm saying is, you could, you could be in the promised land the next, within the next two minutes tonight. Forget your circumstances. Your circumstances have nothing to do with whether or not you're in the promise, with whether you're living an abundant, overcoming, victorious life. Your circumstances on that level don't matter. The promised land is something we experience when we focus on God, when we put our full trust in Him, when we enjoy His presence, and when we can honestly say, God, even with things as they are now, I have you, and in you, I have all that I need. Amen? Now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight, let's take just a moment and make this personal so that we will not have just heard a sermon or studied the Bible, but so that we could have made application. Remember, the the bridge from information to transformation is application. 
So tonight we've had information. We long for transformation to be changed, but it won't happen unless we do application. Would you say this to God tonight, especially those of you who are in the wilderness? Would you just say, God, I make a decision tonight. I need you to help me, but I make a commitment tonight that I'm going to change my focus from my circumstances, from myself. to you and so God the first thing I want to do tonight is tell you how thankful I am to be saved and God the second thing I want to tell you tonight is how thankful I am that you're right here with me and I'm not alone and God the third thing I want to say tonight is I am so grateful that you have a plan for my life God at any moment the cloud could move and you could you could change my circumstances when that happens but God whether the cloud moves or whether the cloud stays as long as I'm under the cloud, it really won't matter because the cloud is more important than my location or my circumstances. And so, God, tonight, with your help, I make a commitment to put my focus on you and not on anything else. Now, there's some here tonight, perhaps, who you couldn't say, God, I thank you that I'm saved because you've never been saved. But tonight could be the night of your salvation. We're seeing people saved in virtually every service we have on Sundays and, uh, and sometimes on Wednesdays. If you don't know that you're saved tonight, would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you now to come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. I trust you, Lord. Welcome to my heart. Begin now to make me the person you want me to be.